0: Hello and welcome to Step Into Light. I'm Michelle Jones, and today I'm going to be recording this episode just a little bit differently. It started out, I had um, a few people that I reached out to to have a conversation with me about the Come Follow Me topic, which this week we're studying 2 Nephi chapters 11 through 25, which is number one, a lot of chapters, and number two, these chapters are all covering the words of Isaiah and it is was fascinating for me and probably not surprising for me to recognize that many people told me i would love to do it but not for the isaiah week. and so one of the things that i wanted to do is to break down the process a little bit today for how i might how i tackled studying this section of the book of mormon which can get really bogged down in symbolism and references that are just totally unfamiliar to us. So for today, you, my listener here on the podcast, are going to be my companion as we study. And I am really looking forward to sharing with you some of the ways that I break this down and to um, share with you, you know, every time we study the scriptures, we are going to learn and gain different things from it. And that is, I think, part of the point. That is why we come back to the scriptures again and again and again. It's not simply because the Lord would like to keep us busy, But he truly recognizes our infinite capacity to learn from him. And by coming back to the scriptures, by stepping into that obedience, we are in a place of being able to not only gain the blessings from obedience, but also to be taught and tutored by him. So the things that I will share today are in no way the only or even the most important things that you can gain from this reading through of these chapters in the Book of Mormon. But it's more of a recognition that we can work in the Spirit and we can, with the Lord's help by walking through it with him, have new and profound things that we can learn and understand that are like custom tailored for this moment in our life so let's break it down just a little bit when i am looking at my study process let's talk about isaiah specifically especially as it relates to the book of mormon so there are a couple of things that i kept with me as references so um and that can be really helpful when you're dealing with um really richly symbolic literature like isaiah and so one thing that i keep with me is the old testament at the beginning of each chapter heading when it references see isaiah chapter 8 for example i have found that going literally to isaiah chapter 8 in the old testament although the text itself is almost identical. There is more included in the footnotes in the Old Testament than what we find in the Book of Mormon. And so that can be very helpful and enlightening to understand sort of um, some nuances of what Isaiah is sharing. So Having the Old Testament available, I have found to be helpful for me. The other thing that I have found to be helpful for me is the Institute Student Manual for the Book of Mormon. Now, I happen to have an old school paper copy of that, but it is also just found in the digital um, gospel library. So that is something that you can access as well. Um, and anytime that you feel bogged down, it can just be a very helpful way to to have this commentary to break it down, maybe outline and make things a little bit more accessible for you. Um, And then the final thing that I take with me is, I think one of the biggest keys for me with scripture study is asking good questions. So what I mean by that is, I come to my scripture reading with some curiosity. I have experiences with the Spirit. I have experiences with my Savior. I have experiences with my heavenly parents. And as I read and study the scriptures, I often will compare what I am reading to the experiences that I've had and use that as a way to build and strengthen that testimony or to understand, to expand my understanding. So who am I asking these questions to? typically it's like an open prayer for me when I'm studying my scriptures and so if the lord knows that i am in a curious open heart mindset to learn and i say heavenly father i i don't understand why why this is this way okay we're we've got a good start there but maybe we'll get into i'm going to bring up some specific examples as we look at some of these chapters that we can get even more specific. And in some ways, the more specific that we are and the more curious we are, then the more interesting our answers become. So those are some of the sort of study tools that I'm taking with me into this study of um, these Isaiah chapters in the Book of Mormon, this go around. Um, okay, so let's talk about what are some of the specific challenges to tackling Isaiah. We're actually going to flip things upside down and we're going to start at the very end. So in Isaiah chapter 25, Nephi is wrapping up. He's just shared, you know, many chapters of the Book of Isaiah with his people. And he says in chapter 25, verse one, for behold, Isaiah spake many things which were hard for many of my people to understand. So, okay, we're in good company. If there are things in here that are challenging, that it's a struggle, that things do not just flow right off the page to our understanding, we are in good company because we know that at this point, Nephi's people were... Um, obedient, they were striving to follow after their Savior, and that these things were hard for them. And then, if we come down into verse four, which I think is one that can be um, it can almost mock us, if if you will, because Nephi tells us that the words of Isaiah are not plain unto you. Nevertheless, they are plain unto all those who are filled with the Spirit of prophecy. And so to me, what this communicates, you know, we talked about, Laura and I spoke about the spirit of prophecy and what does that mean? And really, if we are working in the spirit and we are connected um, with our faith and having that whole process together, then we are going to be able to understand far more in Isaiah than we would otherwise The other thing that I would share is that I don't think that Nephi is telling us this to make us feel bad. Like, well, if you don't understand, then it's because you're not awesome like me with the spirit of prophecy. I think that everything that Nephi is sharing with us is very purposeful and instructive. So really, I think that he would not tell us this if it were not possible for us to progress spiritually to the point where we have been able to develop the spirit of prophecy and to be filled with it so that we can understand. But like most things in in the gospel, this is not a like sort of magical moment where we almost flip the page in our brain and and one day it's just kind of a mystery and some sludge to work through. And the next day, it's just clear and plain because we have the spirit of prophecy. I think like most things in the gospel, this is something that is built um, step by step um that our understanding is expanded. And this is, I think, another sort of understanding and helps us to understand why it's so important for us to return to the scriptures again and again and again daily, even if it's familiar, even if it's words that we've read before. Because by so doing, we are refining and disciplining our brain to really understand the things of God and to understand his scriptures and how they speak to us and how we can learn from them. Like we develop and refine that process as we return to the scriptures again and again and again. And so... If we have a desire for these things to be plain to us, if we have a desire to be filled with the spirit of prophecy and to learn by revelation and to have divine tutoring in our life, then we have to spend time in the classroom, so to speak. We have to spend time in the spirit. We have to spend time with our scriptures. And... That has been true in my life, and I think that it's a fairly um, consistent theme in people's lives. So um, one of the things that I think is helpful to keep in mind when it comes to Isaiah and why it can be specifically challenging is that, you know, we're dealing with a different context and culture. But to be honest, most of scripture that's true for. So, but it, nonetheless, that is still relevant. We have this entirely different context, culture, wars, countries with different names than we're familiar with hearing, different leaders that are not from our time. So they're just not quickly recognizable and familiar to us. The thing that I think is... Um, by far the most relevant in terms of understanding why specifically Isaiah can be challenging is because it's written in layers. Isaiah was incredibly gifted as a writer to be able to, through his words, reference both his time and maybe the meridian of time or the restoration or the time directly preceding the second coming. And even during the millennium, we see All of these different periods of time referenced and many of what he is saying can um, bring illumination or understanding to more than one thing at the same time. So really, each one, each sentence, each verse, each chapter or kind of concept that Isaiah covers can have more than one meaning. And so that is why a lot of his writing is very poetic in nature, because there's a lot of symbolism and representation in it. Okay, I think that that is plenty for an introduction. We are going to start here in chapter 11 and we have um, Jacob is saying, you know, we, last week we had just heard from Jacob and learned. And now Nephi is giving a little introduction. He's saying, you know, we just heard these things from Jacob he testified, he talks about the words of Isaiah, and he shares something that all three of them have in common. Speaking of Isaiah, he says, he verily or truly saw my Redeemer, even as I have seen him. And my brother Jacob also has seen him as I have seen him. And he says, by the words of three, God hath said, I will establish my word. Nevertheless, God sendeth more witnesses, and he proveth all his words. So this is significant. We are being taught and tutored by people who have actually seen the Savior. And that these three men are testifying of each other and of that same experience, I think, is significant as I read, I recognized it is our responsibility to seek out witnesses of our faith um, and to seek out witnesses of the Savior. I think that it's part of having eyes to see is having a willingness to seek and to look for the evidence of God's love and light. So in the same way that Nephi is sharing these words of Isaiah so that we don't just have Nephi's experience. We get Nephi's experience. We get Jacob's experience, and he is also sharing Isaiah's experience so that we don't have to rely on a single witness. We have multiple witnesses. We have the opportunity in our life to recognize that we do not have to um, we do not have to just rely on one thing, that we can have multiple witnesses in our life of how the savior can work in our life, of how grace works in our life. But we have to be willing to look for it. Um, And that is our part of the work in my experience. So moving through in chapter 11, he says um, in verse five, and I love the words that Nephi uses. He says, my soul delighteth in the covenants of the Lord. And I also just think this is just a beautiful thing. You know, when we have eyes to see, increasingly our world is full of delight. It's very easy to be able to notice the things that are not going well in the world, or in our own life, or in even in our own families. But the more that we have our eyes focused on the Savior, we're able to recognize the goodness, love, and mercy of God. And with that ever present before us, as we bring that focus to ourselves, I completely understand why Nephi would say, my soul delighteth. So, That's going to wrap up. So now we're starting here in chapter 12, and we have Isaiah. And so this compares to Isaiah chapter 2, and really he's speaking about um, the last days and the time and preparation for the Savior to come. Um, And one of the things that specifically stood out to me, maybe because it's something that I struggle within myself of being careful not to... um, not to get caught up in this distraction and also to make sure that I recognize that it's not my job to elevate myself. So in chapter 17, um, Isaiah says, and the loftiness of man shall be bowed down and the haughtiness of men shall be made low and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. And to recognize that there is an order and a pattern for things. And as we are connected to and looking at the Savior, that that is where our exaltation will come from. So as we continue on, we have chapter 13. Like I'm going to zip through some of these chapters because as I studied through there were some very specific things that I felt were important to bring up as in our conversation. And when we're covering 11 chapters, that's just going to be the nature of the beast. So we're talking here um, in chapter 13, um, chapter 13, verse 13, the Lord standeth up to plead and standeth to judge the people. And as I look at this, I think that you know, the Lord is the one that is standing up for us. He is standing. He is going to be the one. And there's no substitute here. It's not a delegated assignment. We referenced in one of the last two weeks, we talked about um, how the Savior will be at the gate and that he employeth no servant there. And this principle is getting repeated again. You know, Jesus Christ himself, he is our advocate. He who knows the suffering, pain, unfairness, and indignity in each of us. There is no other way for the judgment um, or for our understanding or recognition to be correct. So a, like as we are judged, I think that sometimes we think of judgment as being somewhat arbitrary that there's a judgment and someone says yes I like you or no I don't like you or hey that looks really fashionable or no that doesn't look fashionable or whatever the circumstance I mean in this case we're talking about the the end judgment where we are sort of held to account for how we have spent our time here on this earth but that a judgment can simply be a recognition of the true state of someone so a judgment is really that the savior in that day at least as i thought and questioned this this was the thought that the spirit whispered to my mind that in that day when the lord stands before us not only is this a completely fair and beautiful thing because he has felt he's the only one who has felt and understands the reference from where we come from and from where all of our decisions have come from but really He is not saying, yes, you're good. No, you're bad. These three people are good, bad, good, sorting us in that way. I really think in that day that not only will he be able to see us as we really are, but we will be able to see us as we really are. It will become something that is plain for us to see and understand our true state. He can see us clearly. And I thought that was a really interesting concept. He also shares that um, in that day, so in chapter 18 now, we are looking at um, in that day, the Lord will take away the bravery of their tinkling ornaments. So he's talking about all of these different things. And, you know, Isaiah is trying to explain a lot of the fashion maybe of our day or and and that this is really just a representation of what he's seeing as the focus of people's attention and um as i pondered it i realized that a lot of these things these this ornamentation that we have in our day and 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 in, and, in, and, and in all days i think really in all dispensations that there are many ways that people seek to gain confidence um maybe it's physical fitness maybe it's fashion maybe successful careers or financial success, maybe just recognition and validation from other people. Like that's how we gain our confidence. Maybe it's a well-curated home. I like. I genuinely do not see any problems with pursuing any of these things. Like it seems to me that the problem is when these things become the source of our confidence. It's really tenuous to tie our confidence to something that is so fleeting and that we really don't have complete control over so we will be secure and um we will not be secure and we'll be subject to losing ourselves as we wrestle with trying to understand our worth because I think our confidence and our assurance of our worth are like very connected so it is not like like our worth is not tied to our accomplishments we don't need to earn it we don't need to earn our worth it is already within us the the tricky thing about this walk that we have in mortality is that the veil has hidden this from our remembrance. We used to know who we were. We used to understand it. We used to, it used to be very clear and plain our connection to God. But as we are here on this earth in this veil with these mists of darkness we have to seek and understand and learn this again in our embodied state. We have to relearn it so that we can remember and have this knowledge and that this can be our true security and confidence. So I think what this is saying is not that the Lord is going to be like, why would you wear that kind of fashion? I'm just going to take it and burn it because I don't think that you should have it. I think the Lord is teaching us That if we rely on these external things to be where we get our confidence from, that it's not going to last. At the end, it is not going to sustain us. But that if we tie our confidence to the Lord and if we are willing to do as President Nelson asked us to do and seek to relearn who we are and what our connection is to God and what um, gifts we have and what our place is here, that if we stand in that confidence, that is not something that can be taken from us. So I really enjoyed that. So now we have chapter 14. Chapter 14 is a little baby verse. And I mean, it's a little baby chapter, it's just six verses long. And one of the things that I think is interesting is it specifically talks about the daughters of Zion and how they will be cleansed. And you know, I have experience as a daughter of Heavenly Father and a sister of the Savior, and it it has been tender. When I have had those moments, when I have connected with them, I have always felt like the utmost care has been taken in response to my needs, my healing Um And so I thought, well, why are we picking on the daughters here? Like, surely this is universal that we have these things that need to be cleansed. So there's one of my questions, right? Why are we saying daughters? What else could daughters represent? If this weren't literal, so I gave some room for that. If this weren't literal, what could daughters represent? And one of the things that I thought of is that daughters or women when in the scriptures or as we're being taught that it can represent... Um, purity, but it can also represent spirituality. If we think about different roles now, we each have a, a stewardship and responsibility for our own spiritual growth, and and we know and understand that. But as we look at the feminine and the masculine, and we think of the masculine as the providers and the protectors and sort of the the key foundation and security for the family and we can look at the feminine as the the spiritual nurture of the family to recognize how important it is for that core spiritual nurture to be cleansed to be pure felt significant to me so that was one interesting um approach to considering how that fit in with this chapter. Then we have um chapter so still in chapter 14 verse 5 and the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night for upon all the glory of Zion shall be a defense. And so, you know, here we're talking about the day when we have Zion. We're here in the millennial day we have been cleansed, and we are able to see that in that day, we will literally be able to see the power and protection of God's love and glory. So I have experienced, um, because of some of the specific challenges and trials that I've had, I have been in a position where I have had to seek out Um, protection, spiritual protection for myself and for my family and for my home. And I have experienced the ability, like I can sense the very real protection that God bestows upon his children. I have felt literally, tangibly the light and power of God surround me. And I've been able to recognize that not only is it protective, but it's also instructive. And although I cannot behold it with my natural eyes like I can, um, like we're seeing we will be able to see in that millennial day, I know that it is nonetheless real and it is nonetheless true. And what a glorious thing it will be in that future day to see it plainly with all of our senses. I know that it is real and it is there, but it is limited in what we can see because of this testing state that we are in here in mortality. And in that day, we will be able once again to recognize and behold God in his glory and his protection and his light with all of our senses. And I am looking forward to that. I think that will be fantastic. Okay, so chapter 15, I'm going to, I also pulled in one more resource for this chapter. I have a good friend who is not only a beautiful woman of faith, but also a master gardener. So we're talking here about the Lord's Vineyard. So I'm here broadcasting this podcast from Arizona. We don't have much in the way of vineyards here, but, you know, I've seen some images. I've been to a vineyard before, but I will be the first to admit I'm not a gardener. This is not something that is a strength of mine. And we'll come back to this in more detail when we come upon the vineyard um, the parable later in the Book of Mormon, but we 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 get a hint of it, and this is you know symbolically the Lord's vineyard or Israel it's become desolate it's not being productive anymore and I can see this like sadness as the Lord is sharing what has happened to his to his vineyard. He says in chapter 15, verse four, what could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? And so then he shares, you know, everything that could have been done has been done. This it, these these plants are no longer producing fruit, they are no longer healthy. They're no longer functioning. And so he says in verse five, I will take away the hedge thereof. So sort of the protection to the vineyard and it shall be eaten up and I will break down the wall thereof and it shall be trodden down and I will lay it waste. And he says, and and so as he talks about this, I felt, um, The question that came to my mind was and the question that I asked and pondered, why would the Lord allow the plants to go to waste? What does this mean? So I was talking to my gardening friend and I said, Angie, why would, as a gardener, if you have plants or whatever that are not producing, they're not healthy, what would be the benefit to letting them go to waste and not continuing to nurture it? And one of the things that... She explained to me and taught me as we allow these plants to to decay, to um, deteriorate, they break apart into their sort of base elements and they become part of the soil and it actually becomes a nourishment and part of the compost that can nourish the soil and prepare for new growth. And... So I thought about that principle, that if one possibility is that we're allowing the plants to break down, they're becoming their elemental parts. So the old structure and function of the plant was not healthy, it was not bearing fruit, And I can recognize that there are times in our lives when sometimes we build our foundation or we create our life in such a way that it cannot bear fruit in our life. It does not allow us to have a healthy connection to God. And in God's mercy, he allows us to dismantle that. He allows us to break it down, to break down even our very foundation, if needed, into its pure elements so that we can start fresh. become rooted properly into the soil to our Savior, and then we can grow and bear good fruit. And this resonated as being something very merciful. My experiences with the Savior have been that when I have come to him, that he is full of love, he is full of mercy. And as I see this truth in our life, I recognize that, we have this opportunity and this mercy, it to be able to break down our own lives if we are humble and if we're willing to follow that instruction and it's painful and it's humbling, and it may make us feel like, I don't know i've 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 had a time where I, Truly everything was stripped down and I probably felt a lot like these plants where everything that I had built up, it just became stripped away and it became me and the savior. And that is this from where I rebuilt things in my life and the confidence going back to that other chapter that Isaiah referenced and the focus of my life is it really was a beautiful tender mercy, even though at the time it felt just incredibly painful. So that was how that question brought this about to me. Um, And so moving on to chapter 16, we have um, Isaiah saying that, um, you know, this is when he is getting called to be a prophet, essentially. He says that in verse one, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne. Um, And he says, lo, like he speaks about the seraphim, this angel that he had, this Coal that touched his lips touched his lips, and it purified him. So recognizing that here Isaiah he's being purified and cleansed, so that he can serve as a prophet, so that he can speak truth. In verse nine, um, Isaiah is told to go and tell this people. So Isaiah he's he's been called. He's been called by his Lord to testify to the people. And one of the things that is interesting here in this chapter, the Lord tells him that many will not understand or be able to learn from him. So that's kind of a hard thing to hear from the Lord, I think. But that the Lord will extend every opportunity. So even though everyone will not be able to turn to the Savior because of the words of Isaiah, the Savior wants for him to speak. Speak and to testify of truth anyway, because he wants all of God's children to have every opportunity to learn. So Isaiah's job was to testify. The choice to receive his words was entirely up to the recipient. So we have this now. Chapter seventeen through nineteen are largely a discussion between the southern and the northern kingdoms of Israel, and um, and also speaking about Assyria at the time of Isaiah. So we have this here as. Um, sort of the foundation for everything that we have. And in the midst of this, in the midst of these stories, we have um, Isaiah prophesying about our Savior, Jesus Christ. So even in the midst of sharing what is going to become a very dominant thing in the lives of all of these people, certainly to live in war and to be taken in captivity and I mean, this is significant in their lives. And yet in the midst of this, he testifies again and again through these chapters of the Savior. For example, in verse 14, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And so we see that this continues in chapter 18. We see this more again. and interesting, he speaks about the Savior, and we saw this reference, this imagery. It reminded me of Peter when he was, um, when we read Peter's testimony and his words um, in the New Testament that Jesus Christ, he can either be um, the rock of our foundation or a stone of stumbling, and that how we receive him is entirely up to our focus and up to us. So Isaiah says in second Nephi chapter 18 verses 13 and 14, sanctify the Lord of hosts himself and let him be your fear and he shall be a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both houses of Israel. So we see that whether he is our sanctuary and where we find our rest or whether he is a rock of offense and a stone of stumbling is largely up to us. He says in verse 17, um, and I will wait upon the Lord. So there is something that's very refining and purifying about waiting on the Lord. It is not my favorite thing to do, waiting on the Lord. And yet when I can let go, of my expectation for how things will unfold and I can open my hand and stop holding onto it so tightly. I can hand it to the Lord and I can say, I know you've got this and I have the faith to continue to grow and develop spiritually as I wait to see how you unfold this in my life. It is not a state of hopelessness waiting. It is a state of calm faith a confidence that the Lord can take the path before us and work it together for our good. So we can have hope, we extend faith, we strive to live in charity, and then we can watch the hand of God work miracles in our life. One of my favorite responses right now when someone says, hey, Michelle, how are you doing? How are things? And I'll say good. And they're like, oh, everything's just going great in your life. And I think, well, no, but the greatest gift that the Lord has helped me to uncover right now is the ability to feel calm, to feel his peace in the midst of chaos. Because let's be honest, family life, chaos. I mean, there are times when things are orderly and lovely and everything's going according to plan, but it's not and in, in my experience. And for those who have shared with me, I feel like it's a common experience for our lives to have some level of commotion, chaos, things not going how we expected, no matter how well our plans are, things are not going well. And yet, if we follow this counsel and we wait upon the Lord, it is my testimony and my experience that we can, the Lord can teach us how to have calm and how to feel peace. And how to be in just a state of calm faith as we wait upon the Lord. Be and the challenge for me was to be curious about it, to be curious to turn to the Lord and say, Lord, how is this done? Because you have shared with me that this is possible. So how is this done? So we're gonna keep going in chapter 19. Isaiah speaks messianically. And he talks about the light, about Jesus Christ being the light. This is such beautiful imagery. We all have times when we walk in darkness. It is the nature of living here in this imperfect world and walking outside of the presence of God. I think it is the nature of mortality. I love that Isaiah reminds us that Jesus Christ is the source of light that will truly chase the shadows from our life. He says in chapter 19, verse two, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. And this this poetic wording of Isaiah speaking about how this light can shine even in the shadow of death is filled with so much hope and something that I just truly loved. And then again, continuing at this poetic work, we have um, the beginnings of some songs here in Isaiah. He says in chapter six, which many of us will recognize from Christmas time, the my, the Messiah um, speaking again, of course, prophesying of the Savior, uh, verse six, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And I feel the truth. I feel the the spirit testifying to me that each of these roles that the Savior can have in our life will be a blessing to us. And Isaiah is teaching and testifying that to us. So we have in... Verse in chapter 20, we're talking about sort of destruction that is going to come um, in preparation for the second coming. And there is um, some symbolism here as the destruction of Assyria in Isaiah's time is a type or a symbol of the destruction that we're going to see at the beginning in preparation for that. And sometimes I struggle with destruction because that is not. Um, Uh, That doesn't resonate for me, what my experiences with the Lord have been. They have not been like vengeful and wrath-filled. They have been compassionate and loving and gentle. And so as I study this, these are some of the questions that come to mind. In verse 17, we have, And the light of Israel shall be for a fire, and his Holy One for a flame, and shall burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day. So this is an interesting use of light and flame. In the previous chapter, we speak about the savior as being something that illuminates and brings light to the shadows of this mortality. But for those, and so for those that follow him, he is a light and guide, but the same flame that illuminates truth can also consume that which is not truth. So I'm going to say that again, the same flame that illuminates truth can also consume that which is not truth. So as the prophecies roll forth about the second coming, it's interesting to consider that the flame and burning is a purification. So it's a cleansing, so that only that which is compatible with light will stand at the day of his second coming. The darkness within each of us, because there because it is, it's part of our walk here in mortality, that we have to, that we are made of light and dark here on this earth, and that that the darkness that is within each of us, it can be burned away so that we are prepared to meet with the Lord face to face. That And and it's interesting, he speaks about the thorns and the briars, that that shall be burned away. And as I thought about going back to this gardening analogy, which I'm picturing in my mind, because we all know now that I'm not a master gardener on any level, but that the thorns and briars, I have to imagine that if you have thorns and briars, that that can restrict growth and make harvest very difficult. So it is needful and purposeful that that be removed before the Lord comes again. So we have chapter 21. We are talking um, about the millennial reign, verses 5 through 10 specifically. We're talking about the millennial reign and how there will be peace, harmony, knowledge of Jesus Christ just abounding in the earth and how thankful I am for that. In verse nine, Isaiah says, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. So that beautiful poetic um, makes me yearn for that time. I look forward to the time of the millennium. That will be amazing to experience. Um, and then in chapter two, as we're talking about other signs of this beautiful time in the earth is that it, it will, in verse 12, that um, he will set this up for a sign that he will gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And President Nelson has talked to us about this gathering of Israel and how essential it is for the earth to be prepared for the Savior to come again. So as we look forward to that time of the millennium, we recognize that that is also what we must do. And then he speaks about some of the miraculous ways that this gathering will take place. And he says, you know, he's talking about At the at the very end of chapter twenty one, that this can be likened unto, um, in verse sixteen, like as it was to Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt, speaking of when the Red Sea was parted, and you know that's a pretty big miracle. I'm picturing like on the news, if that sort of miracle were to happen in our day, that would be, I think, something that would inspire the focus of the entire earth, and that. I think Isaiah is telling us that there will be miraculous ways that the gathering of Israel will be accomplished. It is the Lord's work. And if necessary, the very earth can shift to accomplish his purposes. And so we need to be careful not to limit within our own mind how things can be accomplished. Chapter 22 is a very poetic, beautiful chapter. And actually, we get um, the source for a couple different hymns here, including the Lord is my light. So I loved that. And I just want to share in chapter two with you or chapter 22, excuse me, verse two. um, Just this, you know, I have never been blessed with the ability to sing in such a way that other people would be interested in hearing me sing. That is not my strength and so i have found it sometimes difficult to connect to music because of that but as i recognize how much of music truly is a te- just testifies of our savior and is a recognition and our way of being able to speak, seeing our testimony of him. I find myself developing such a love for our hymns. In verse two, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. So chapter 23, we have the destruction of Babylon and that that is a type of the destruction of the second coming. Um, We have... Um, so in chapter 23, we're really seeing a continuation of understanding the type of destruction that we are going to see um, at the second coming. And again, Isaiah is speaking symbolically here, teaching us about Babylon and the destruction of Babylon as being a type or symbol of that destruction. Isaiah says in chapter nine, he uses this phrase multiple times in this chapter, the day of the Lord cometh. And this phrase represents the concept that the Lord will preserve the righteous and eliminate the wicked. And perhaps this has to do with the inherent instability of, weakness, of wickedness, excuse me. So the, 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 the very same action can come to different people and have different results. So it reminds me of the primary song um, about the wise man and the foolish man and how they built their houses. So it truly is like building on a foundation of shifting sand. By definition, when we're talking about the instability of wickedness, so by definition, it's not permanent. It is not able to withstand the earth shifting to prepare to receive the Lord in his glory. So it seems like one natural consequence A building with temporal priorities is that they will eventually pass away. We can do it. We can build with it. It can hold together for some time. But if we truly want to build something um, that can withstand only that which is based on eternal principle and truth and our savior, um can withstand that day, the day of the Lord that cometh. So there's a lot of fearsome prophecy of the destruction of the last days in these verses that follow. And this seems to underscore even more the importance of building our lives and our priorities on the solid foundation of the Redeemer of the world. Like if we ever needed some more motivation to do that, chapter 23 will do that for you so chapter 24 we're we're connecting here toward the end we have um this verse you know we've just been learning some heavy things about the destruction that will have to happen to cleanse the earth but then in verse 3 as we're talking again about this millennial rest in verse 3 isaiah said teaches us that in that day that the lord shall give thee rest from thy sorrow and from thy fear. So in the midst of the suffering, we learn about the that that we learn about in preparation for the second coming, we have this beautiful restful concept. There truly is rest in the Lord. So although we are asked here and on our time here on earth to walk purely in faith in this life, there will come a time when we can rest in the knowledge of our God. And this will be a time of great peace, a time of understanding and growth and the ability to see the plan of God unfold before us. And it will be marvelous to behold. And again, like we referenced earlier in the episode, this will be a time that we can experience this with all of our senses. So we also um, are introduced in verse, um, let's see, verse This is where Isaiah introduces us to Lucifer. He gives Satan his name. Um, Well, Isaiah doesn't give him the name, but he reveals his name to us. Lucifer is mentioned by name almost exclusively by Isaiah. And as I studied this, the thought that came to me forcefully is that in the same way that we know that the Savior and his power and ability are real, that Lucifer is real, that he is um, part of... Our story here on earth. Um, and speaking of, so then Isaiah shares in chapters 12, 13, and 14 um, about Lucifer. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? For thou hast said in my heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also, I'm sorry, I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And so here we see that Lucifer, a beloved son of our heavenly parents, you know, he was so knowledgeable and close to God and that he felt that he knew better. He saw a path for himself that did not take anyone else's interest in. And it certainly didn't take into account the Lord's plan. And he saw a path where he could have glory and he could have recognition and everybody would look to him and he would be exalted above the stars of God. And that is the path that he took. And that is the kind of pride that we are talking about there. So now we close back up. So we've heard all these prophecies from Isaiah and Nephi closes it together for us. He shares his testimony and we are able to see, um, Starting in verse eight of chapter twenty-five, Nephi says, "These things of Isaiah they are of worth unto the children of men." Um, And then he he starts to share more of his testimony that in verse twelve and thirteen. When the day cometh, so he's testifying about our Savior and when he's going to come. So we've heard Isaiah testify, and now Nephi's coming in, and he's giving his testimony. When the day cometh that the only begotten of the Father, yea, even the Father of heaven and of earth shall manifest himself unto them in the flesh. So this day will come, and now we know that's the meridian of time when the Savior was here in the flesh. And I love this poetic imagery that Nephi shares with healing in his wings. So here's our Savior in this beautiful imagery. And all those who shall believe on his name shall be saved in the kingdom of God. Wherefore, my soul delighteth the prophesy concerning him. And then um, as we carry on verse 17, and the Lord will set his hand again the second time to restore his people from their lost and fallen state. And I recognize the mercy, the love, the grace that we receive from our heavenly parents, from our savior, that their hand is stretched out to us to have this. Um, And he calls him by name. So here we have in the Book of Mormon, these prophets living on the American continent. The savior has not walked the earth yet, but they knew they were taught in chapter 19, his name shall be Jesus Christ, the son of God. So, if we receive nothing else, this testimony that Nephi shares here in verse 20, if we only knew this, we could direct our course and be redeemed from God. Nephi says, These things are true. And as the Lord God liveth, there is none other name given under heaven save it be this Jesus Christ of which I have spoken, whereby man can be saved. And some of my favorite verses, for we labor diligently to persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ, to be reconciled, for we know it is by grace we are saved, after all that we can do. Notwithstanding we believe in Christ, we keep the law of Moses and look forward with steadfastness unto Christ until the law shall be fulfilled. And I just wanted to make a note. I think that this was challenging for people in the days of the law of Moses, but I also think it can be challenging for us in this day to recognize the purpose of the law, whether it be the law of Moses or the law of the restored gospel that we have now, the purpose of the law is to turn us to God. That is the purpose, to direct us, to point us to the savior. The law can become a stumbling block for us when we interpret it in a way that separates us from God. God is good and loving, and he yearns for us to receive grace in our lives. And we, and we qualify for it. Like we qualify for grace and mercy and help and love from God because we are his child end, stop. There's nothing else that we need to do to qualify for it but be his child. And we qualify for his love. So, That is unchanging. That is not something that will be changing. So to remember that that points us to the Savior. Then we have verse 26, which is one of my favorite scriptures in the Book of Mormon, and really the purpose of what we do here, specifically of what I'm doing here with this podcast. We talk of Christ. We rejoice in Christ. We preach of Christ. We prophesy of Christ. And we write according to our prophecies that our children may know to what source they may look for a remission of their sins. And verse 28, the right way is to believe in Christ and deny him not. So I am thankful for this time that I had with you as my study companion today to talk about these really beautiful chapters of Nephi and Isaiah, both testifying of our Savior, both testifying how we can turn to Him to receive that grace. And I look forward to connecting with you next week. You can find me on Instagram at Step Into Light Podcast, or um, directly with my personal Instagram, which is Michelle's Muse, um, or on my website, um, jonesharbor.com. So I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you.